Good morning, good morning. Um, I want to get to the end of Ecclesiastes because uh, there's a lot of joy and hope in the end. Um, but while we're here, let's, let's keep going. Uh, let's pray. God, help us today. Um, as we kind of take a break from um, the classic Ecclesiastes, but uh, we take a look at ourselves today. Um, you tell us to, to come to you and to be quiet and to listen and not only to listen, but to do. And Lord, without you, we can't do either of those. So we ask you right here, right now to be on us so that we can listen and that we can do and that we can align our lives in such a way that we bring you honor and glory. Um, we love you. We worship you. Uh, you are our King, Jesus. Thank you. Amen. Um, good morning. My name is Josh Karstensen. Again, I'm the adult ministries pastor here. This is week three of a five-week study of the book of Ecclesiastes, this kind of uh, arduous, thorny book of Ecclesiastes that, that a lot of times as we're reading, we're saying, wow, um, I really have no idea what you're saying here, but I can sympathize with that. All right? I can sympathize and understand that, that in this life, often we find ourselves um, frustrated in life under the sun, and we appreciate a lot of what Solomon has to say. We appreciate the fact that he is extremely honest with what he has encountered in life, and we appreciate um, just the way that he writes, the way that he doesn't hold anything back, the way that he just lets it all go, and we can say to ourselves, yeah, yeah, I feel that way. I feel that way a lot. I feel that way a lot. Um, we started out week one with a little bit of background and some history of um, where we are in humanity, where we're at, where we stand, right? We, I made this analogy of a tetherball, and I said that the world that you and I live in is very much like a tetherball. You got the pole, you got the rope, you got the ball, but unfortunately that rope is broken. That rope is broken, which makes a game of tetherball extremely frustrating next to impossible to play, right? It turns into kickball. No longer is it tetherball. And it became this way because in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve fell, right? They, they took that fruit, they sinned, and from then forward, you and I live in a world that is broken. We live in a world that sin and death reign, and we live in a world that is extremely frustrating. It's extremely frustrating. And we're so frustrated that, in fact, towards the end of life, all of us die. And on the surface, a lot of things can seem meaningless. It can seem meaningless that we work so hard to get all these things, but in the end, we all die and give everything away to someone who really probably didn't deserve it in the end. Okay, I also said that God intentionally created this circumstance. He intentionally created a world like this because it makes us ask the question, right, what's wrong? You know, so, so you and I, when we experience trouble and turmoil and frustration, we ask, what is wrong? Things don't seem to be right here. This life doesn't seem to be the way that it's supposed to be. And God says, yeah, you're right. It's, it's not the way it's supposed to be. And in fact, I'm in the process of fixing all of that. And I've done that in Genesis 3 when I introduced to you my son Jesus. And through him, I'm going to restore and I'm going to fix all things. But only through Jesus is this going to happen. Right? So you and I, as we learned last week, we were created for what? We were created for eternity. And somewhere deep, deep down inside of us, we know that this is true. This is why it's very hard for us to imagine that we're going to die someday. This is why we say, it's probably not going to be me. It's probably not going to happen today, but maybe sometime down the road. Because we were created for much, much more than this. 
And it's true. God says, I've created you for life beyond this life. It doesn't end here. This isn't it. There's a lot more that's coming. Pursue me and you will be filled. Pursue me and you will find satisfaction. Pursue me and you will live. Pursue me because I have conquered death. And after this life, you can join me. Pursue me, says Jesus. At the end of chapter 1 and getting into chapter 2, we saw Solomon's kind of pursuit of meaning. Pursuit of happiness, pursuit of joy. And we see this quest that he's on to try to find meaning um, while living. We see this quest of, of him searching. He uses wisdom. He uses pleasure. He uses possession. He uses accomplishments. He, he uses all these things and he says, I'm going to try anything that I can with all the resources, with all the wisdom, with all the power that I have to try and find some meaning while I'm here on life. Right? And we also learn that any attempt that we try similar to Solomon, is kind of just pathetic. We don't have anywhere near the capability that he does. And he tried it all with everything, and he said, you know what, it's, it's meaningless. It's meaningless. Life here is meaningless. And we also learned that while the whole time he was in pursuit of this, he didn't forget what? He didn't forget wisdom. He didn't forget that this whole search was just that. It was a search. It was a search. He was trying to find if there was Meaning, this, these were all experiments. Remember, Solomon wasn't just a lucky rich kid, right? Granted, he was the son of King David, but God came to Solomon and he said, whatever you want, whatever you want, you can have. I'm going to bless you anything you want. And Solomon says, okay, um, I've been given this kingdom. I don't know how to rule and reign wisely. I want your wisdom, Lord. And God says, you're the man you're going to get it. And not only that, but you're going to get everything else that comes along with that. You're going to get everything else. And despite of all of the accomplishments and all of the women, he still wanted more. He still wanted more. He was bored. And he came to the conclusion that life under the sun is similar to a guy chasing after the wind, trying to put it in a jar and put it in his pocket. Because while the good times were good, they were just that. They were good. They were fun. They were temporary at best. And at the end of the day, he couldn't pursue happiness any longer. He got bored. He got bored. So what we said is, is the house that we're spending so much time fixing up, the car that we're spending so much time washing, in the end, it will need to be replaced and it will be forgotten. Right? And that's the same with you and I. In the end, we will be forgotten. And then we get to the end of chapter 2, verse 24, where, where he says, you know what? In life, we need to find joy because life is a gift. And last week, we spent a lot of time looking at, okay, what season of life am I in? You know, where am I at right now? And what do I have in life that makes it a gift? What can I do to bring joy in my life? What season am I in? How can I best reach people for the gospel where I am right now? And that's kind of where we were last week. Now we're today, we are in chapter 5 chapter 5. And I want to catch us up with chapter 4, but I'm going to do it a lot quicker than I did last week. Last week, I, I promised we're going to go through chapter 2, and that ended up being about half the sermon. So today, we're going to run through chapter 4, but I'm going to do it in four sentences. Chapter 4 in four sentences. Again, I, I want you, and you should want this for yourself, read that at home. Study it. Ask questions. Find answers. Chapter 4 is a great chapter. But for sake of time, we're, we're skipping it and we're going to chapter 5. So here's chapter 4 in four sentences. Many of us, this is verses 1 through 3. Many of us, comma, 
No matter where we live, comma, or how much money we have, comma, we're alone in the world, and no matter, and, and we don't have anyone to comfort us, comma, and this is really sad. Okay, so no matter who you are, um, no matter how much money you have, often many of us are alone, and this is really sad. Okay, that's verses 1 through 3. Verses 4 through 6. Our entire global economy is driven by envy. That's verses 4 through 6. Our entire global economy is driven by envy. These aren't my words. Don't think I'm crazy. This is what Solomon's saying. Third sentence. As a response to the first sentence or first statement, surround yourself by people who love you so that you won't be alone. Okay, so first sentence, most of us are alone. Third sentence, find people who love you so that you won't be alone. And last sentence, popularity and success don't last. You're going to be forgotten. Let's keep going. Chapter 5, verse 1. Let's get right into it. Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Okay, immediately we see something very different in chapter 5 than we did in the first four chapters. The first four chapters specifically described the condition of humanity as it is. Okay, but now Solomon kind of changes the direction of his speech directly to us, directly to the reader. And he renders that you and I have a propensity towards vanity. It's not just that life as it is has a propensity towards vanity. It's that you and I have it in our hearts towards being vain. And that is namely in the form of worship, which we're going to see. Today might be a bit of a gut check for some of us. Um, Some of you might not like my message. Okay, but let me tell you, it's not my message. So um, email and comment um, to someone else, namely to God, because it's his words. These aren't my words. So don't get mad at me if, uh, if I seem a little overly critical Because guess what? I'm being critical to myself here as well because I'm sitting where you guys are sitting and we are all reading these words together. So guard your steps when you come to the house of God. Okay, Pay attention. Look carefully where your feet are pointed. Guarding our steps, watching them. This refers to the relationship between our inward hearts and our outward actions. And from the nature of this sentence, we can see that this was a problem in Solomon's time. Okay, remember, Solomon knows the order of worship very, very, very well, right? We learned a couple weeks ago that he built the temple, right? His dad got everything together for it, but he actually built it. He built it to the exact dimensions that God had for it. Every single tiny, tiny detail that was in the temple was hand-given to Solomon by God saying, hey... This is exactly what it's supposed to look like. And this is exactly how you're supposed to worship. And if you're a guy, you're going to go here. And if you're a girl, you're going to go here. And if you're a Jew, you're going to go here. And if you're not a Jew, you're going to go here. And the animals get slaughtered here. And they get slaughtered on this day. And once a year, the high priest goes and he goes into this one little small room, which is called the Holy of Holies, where God himself decides to put all of himself in there for the first time. So Solomon knows the order of worship very, very well. He knows the temple, right? Last week I said they spent seven years building it. 
153,000 workers, seven years, to build this thing. He knows the order of worship very, very well. And he knows our hearts also very, very, very well. He knows that the habit of regularly visiting the temple was being strictly observed. And in fact, it was so regular that he knows that we have a propensity towards making it a formal ritual. And he gives ourselves a warning in verse 1. He gives ourselves a warning. He says, check your attitude when it comes to worship and visiting the temple. Check your heart. Guard your steps to draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Worship begins with a heart of respect. Guard your steps when you come to worship. Right? To be honest, in our culture, we, we don't really know um, respect very well. Right? Growing up from a little kid, we have a hard time understanding what it's like to live in a culture of honor. Right? And I found this out very, very quickly the last couple of years as I was not living in the United States. I was living in Asia. And I found out very, very quickly that, that I grew up in a culture that is very different. And I have, I have a very different background than most of these people. And I don't understand what honor and respect is as much as many of them over there. And what this looked like, it looked like a lot of things. But what would happen is um, I was coaching over there. I, I was preaching, I was teaching, I was coaching. And while I was coaching, we'd go to a field. I'd cram 20 guys into a 12-passenger van. We'd drive 30 miles away. We'd get to this beautiful stadium, and we'd have a full team. We're practicing, we're playing. And then three older gentlemen would come. And they'd want to play on the same field that we're playing on. And they'd say, uh, you guys need to leave. And I'd say, are you kidding me? Get out of here, old man. Like, we were here first. Right? And, and the question was always, the kids would always ask them, how old are you? They'd always ask, well, well, how old are you? And then they'd always ask me, Mr. C, how old are you? And I look a lot older than uh, most Koreans do for my age. But... It, I, it always came down to, if they're older than us, it doesn't matter. you got to get off. you got to get off. And in my heart, I said, no way. And, and this turned out to be pretty ugly sometimes. And unfortunately, a couple times, some kids said, oh, Mr. C, you are very disrespectful. Very disrespectful. And that's because in my heart, I did not grow up in a system of honor. In a system of honor. And, and most of us as Americans, we do not understand what it's like to live in a system of honor. Right? We have a hard time understanding what it's like to honor our, our peers and our teachers and our parents and those older than us and those in authority over us. Right? You just have to ask yourself the question, do I spend more of my thoughts and my words criticizing or complimenting those in authority? Right? Ask yourself that. Do I spend more of my thoughts criticizing or complimenting those in authority? And we even celebrate it here in our culture, right? right? We celebrate it. Bumper stickers, question authority. Right? Who, who's seen that? It's, it's around. We have it. And, and because you and I are so inundated in this type of thinking, we have a predisposition to take this attitude here, right? To, to this place, to church, to worship. This is why when most of us pick a church, it's, it's not, Lord, where do you want me to serve it's, um, do I like the music? 
right? Do I like the pastor, right? Is he old enough? Is he young enough? Does he say what I want to hear? You know, when we listen to sermons, it's, it's what did I like about that? Am I entertained, right? Is my coffee hot enough? Is, are the drinks good enough? Is the meat at the barbecue tasty enough? Did anyone come say hi to me? Right? Don't, don't worry that I didn't really go say hi to anyone else. Um, did, this, did the sermon line up with what I think is the perfect balance of background, of history, of context, of humor? And did he have enough cultural current awareness that when I left I felt convicted and challenged? Just the perfect amount. And was I able to stay awake? He's got very, very harsh words for us who find ourselves in this position. He says, shut your mouth and listen. You're making so much noise that you don't even know that you're evil. And, and you know what's crazy here? This isn't to the person who's out there. This is to the person here. He says, for those of you who are coming to church, check yourself. He says, check yourself. You might be evil and you might not even know it because you're not coming here to listen. You're not coming to listen. We might be regular attenders. We might be going to all of the activities. We might be involved. But are we coming here to listen? Did we come in this morning ready to hear? Did we come in this morning ready to worship? We might be the fool who comes here not ready to listen. So when we come to church, we're called to come to listen to His words. Not to decide for ourselves what we liked or didn't like about the service. Not to decide what was annoying and what wasn't about the sermon. He tells us to listen because He has something to say. And what I think is weird is how often we, we think, gee, God never talks to me. Right? You ever thought of that? Right now, we're reading his words. Right now, we're hearing what he has to say. Right now. He's spoken to us. He's given us his word. Let's give him the honor due and let's listen. Listening to the scriptures is probably the most important thing that we can do here. That's why every time anyone comes up here and is talking to you, it's, it's not what they think um, is important. It's what the Bible says. It's, it's what God says. Because who cares what I have to say, really? Who, who cares? I could be gone tomorrow. Who cares? It's, it's what God has to say. And this should be a priority in your lives as well. Verses 2 to 3. Don't be rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven, and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For a dream comes with much busyness and a fool's voice with many empty words. Here we see another very similar warning to verse 1. In verse 1, we were concerned with the tedium of regular church attendance, a void of a heart that listens. Now we're warned of another practice um, that can lose its vitality due to repetition. How often do we come to the Lord in prayer out of duty and out of pattern that we forget altogether our position and our standing? Right? If, if you grew up in church at all and have any sort of uh, church background, uh, we kind of all know what's coming. Right? If you grew up in Protestant evangelical church, you know what Sunday is going to look like. 
right? You're going to show up. If you're a regular tender, you might be five minutes late. You come on in. Someone very friendly gives you a piece of paper. It might have some sermon notes. It might have some things going on throughout the week. You walk in here. Some other friendly people will shake your hand. You find a seat, hopefully by some people you like. We sing some songs. You know, if it's Christmas or Easter, you might get the special. You know, someone might come up here and sing a solo. Um, We're going to hear a sermon. After the sermon, we're going to sing a couple more songs. Uh, Usually we'll have some sort of offering, and maybe every once in a while we'll have communion, and we'll throw in some prayer here and there every once in a while. Um, And then we go home, and our prayer lives often look very similar, right? For some of us, it's, it's the same thing every day, right? It's, it's early in the morning. It's late at night. It's, it's maybe not at all. You know, it's, it's maybe once at dinner. It's, it's very repetitious. It's very predictable. And like Solomon says, what's the danger when life becomes predictable and repetitious is that we can come with a lot of noise and a little heart. We can come with a lot of noise and a little heart. We can find ourselves going through the motions and we can get stuck the same way on Sunday morning, the same way in our prayer lives. Right this morning when we woke up, it's probably just habit now on Sunday morning. We're going to church. How many of us actually thought, Lord, what do you have for me today? What am I going to learn today? How am I going to take what I learned and how am I going to do that? And when I do that, how is that going to draw me closer to you so that I can worship you more? This is a gut check for a lot of us. Right? And not only in our prayer do we have this propensity towards becoming very regular and repetition, and repetitious, we, we have uh, this thought that says, if I use more words, then, then maybe God will hear me, right? And if I use more words and they're bigger, big, large, multi-syllabled words, then maybe he will really hear me, right? God is not impressed with our feeble attempts to coerce him with our theological diction, right? I've said it before and I've said it again. God's not impressed with us. God is not impressed with you. It's true. He's not impressed with me. Um, And some of us think that the way that we pray, that we're really impressing God. Oh, man, he must must be impressed with me. I used a lot of big words. I I prayed for a long time. It's it's not only unimpressive, it's pathetic. Because, first of all, we can only speak one language. And because I know some people will tell me in the courtyard, I know someone who speaks seven. Okay, we can speak a few. Um... We have to use our mouth. We have to use our mind. Right? God says, not only did I create you, I created language, I created your mind, and I know what's going on in it. So he knows. He knows all things. So we don't need to pray like this. Dear heavenliest thou doth, Father, I doth needest thy jobeth, pleaseth, reigneth on me thy mercies, because if not, if I will not be able to eateth. Right? That, that is not what God's asking for. He's not asking for an attitude of trying to speak a certain language to him. God, I, I need a job. Right? We don't need fancy words. We're not persuading him with our language. Matthew 6, 5-8 has some things to say about this. And when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. 
And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Okay, this last part's important. Your Father knows what you need. Right? Some of us grew up with a dad who knows us very, very well. We understand what it's like to have a father who knows what we need. Some of us didn't. Some of us have a, have a really hard time seeing de- God as, as father. But he says, I know what you needed before you asked. So, so when we come to him, we can say, God, I'm, I'm hurting. God, God, I need you right now. I can't see you. I can't feel you, but I need you. Right? Um, why are you letting this happen to me? It doesn't have to be this long, drawn-out thing. God understands. He knows it before you even ask. So he's just saying, be honest with me. Be honest with me. Don't worry about articulacy. Worry about honesty. Right? Be honest with God. You're not fooling him. He already knows. Right? I've said this again and again. God already knows. So let's stop beating around the bush and let's be honest. So my question is for you, are you asking? Are we asking? Are we paying attention when he answers? Because it's easy to ask. It's easy to ask. But are we paying attention also when he answers? Verses 4 through 7. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it. For he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin. And do not say before the messenger what it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow grow many, there is vanity. Okay, interestingly, we start out with worship Um, in church. And then we move to worship in prayer. Now here we're moving to worship in life. And verse four starts out with promises and with vows. Okay. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay in paying it. Okay. Where does this come from? It's, it's a little confusing. Why would he say this right here? Well, let's, let's follow the, the logic train here. Okay. When, When you, when you have a child and, and you ask them, did you not hear what your mother said? Didn't you hear what your teacher said? Right, what are you really asking? Did you not do what your mother said? Right, you might have actually heard the words that were spoken, but what we're really getting at is, why didn't you do what you were told? Right, why didn't you do that? So when we listen, or so, so when we say, listen to me, what we mean is, do what I say. Do what I say. Jumping back to verse 1. To draw near is better to listen than to offer the sacrifices of fools. So when we come to church, listen to what's being said. And not only listen, but do what's being taught. Right? So it's implied here. So we hear and we say, okay, I'm going to do that. Right? And we make vows. We make promises. Right now, you might be thinking, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to do what I'm taught today. That is making a vow. And that's why we get into the section of vows and promises. I want us to think for a minute about the last three months. And I only say three months because that's the amount of time I've been here. 
off the top of my head, some of the things that we have learned in the last three months. Okay? When I first got here, week one, Pastor Andy was speaking from, I think, Ezra 8 on fasting. Okay? He gave us um, a great sermon on fasting. And then after that, I gave us um, a sermon through the book of Jonah. And we talked about idols. And we talked about running away from our idols. And then Pastor Kurt came and told us to act like children. And then Pastor Andy came and told us to act like men. And then, um, in a little bit different order, and then um, I came with Zephaniah and said, if you don't run from your idols, what's going to happen? We're going to be destroyed. We're going to be destroyed. My point is that every week there are multiple opportunities to take what we learn and to go and to do it. All right, last week alone, last week, Ecclesiastes 3, we read about all the different times and the seasons that we all go through and all the challenges that we go through and, and how you and I are to appropriately handle the different seasons of life that we're in. Right? How many of us last week entered a season of mourning so that healing could begin? How many of us started something new that needed to be started how many of us ended something that needed to be stopped? How many of us are feeling guilty right now? Here's a better question. How many of us, while listening last week, felt, oh, that's me? Or maybe, oh, that's my wife. Right? How many of us felt that? How many of us? I need to give that away. I need to ask for forgiveness. I need to say goodbye to this friend. I need Jesus because I keep gathering and I keep collecting, but I'm never full. The good news is that was the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit saying, yeah, that's you. You need that right now. The bad news is, while in the moment, most of us are like, yeah, I need that. We go home and we do nothing. And then again, we wonder why God feels so distant. So verse 4, when you vow a vow to God, don't delay in paying it, for he takes no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than you should vow and not pay. Here, the other side of vow making, which we shouldn't quickly overlook, is kind of this barter system. Right? In the ancient Near East, um, this, this barter system was very typical. And we see this um, in, Hannah, in, sorry, in 1 Samuel chapter 1 from Hannah. 1 Samuel 1, 10 through 11. This is talking about Hannah. She was deeply distressed and prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. And she vowed a vow. O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall touch his head. Right? So have you ever been in a similar situation? Usually these are kind of out of desperation, Right? So, so, God, if you give me this job, if, then, then I, I'm going to tithe 12%. Right? Forget that 10%. That's for wimpy Christians. I'm going to do 12. Right, God, if I just don't get caught, if no one finds out, then I'm going to become a missionary to Iran and North Korea, and I'm going to sell everything I have, and I'm going to give it all to you. Lord, just please don't let me get caught. Right? Lord, if I just... If I don't run out of gas, I will go to church on Sunday. I will read my Bible four times this week. It's, it's if, then. It's if, then. 
We come, we listen, we think in our minds, we say in our hearts that we're going to change, but we go home and often we find ourselves doing nothing. And the fact of the matter is that God answers these prayers often. Often he even answers our prayers of desperation. And he does what we ask. But we don't remember. And we don't follow through. And Solomon says, that's meaningless. That's vanity. It's vain to dream and pretend that you're going to do something and then to not do it. That's vain. It's vain to make promises. It's vain to say, yeah, I'm going to do that and then not do anything. That's meaningless. So here's the reality of life under the sun. You can come to church all you want. Right? Whether or not you're coming here to send your kids to Sunday school so that they'll find religion, or maybe you're looking for friends, uh, maybe you're looking for a good time. And, and when you're here, you can listen. You can listen and you can think, all right, right now I'm going to go home and I'm going to change the world. Right? Today's the day I'm going to do it. Right? I'm, I'm conquering death. And you can go home and you can try. You can try to do it. And sure, we can change a few behaviors. Right? You, can, you can give away a couple things. You can end a couple things. And maybe you did this last week. Right? I got a few emails from some people. You know, I started this. I stopped this. And that's great. That is wonderful. In the end, if you're doing it for you and not for Christ, your joy and your satisfaction won't last. You'll get bored and you'll look for the next thing. You'll look for the next thrill. Right? That's why a lot of times we love changing churches. We get bored. It's for us. That's why Christian marriages end. That's why people leave faith. Because it's, it's for us. It's not for, for Him. So if your worship this morning and if your marriage and if your faith isn't for Christ, then, then you might get a small sense of satisfaction this morning. You might get that happy feeling of, oh, good, I went to church today. I'm a good, I'm a good person. Right? It's becoming less and less in this culture that that is true, but, but it certainly still is there. So, so Solomon says, yeah, you're going to have a little bit of reward. You're going to have a little bit of reward, but that's about it. Um, you're like the guy in Matthew 6. Truly, I say to you, you have received your reward. Right? To, to get beyond that, though, right? we, we want to get beyond that. We want to get beyond this, this temporary, I feel good, it makes me happy. We want to get beyond that. So how do we do that? How do we press forward? There's only one way that we can do it, because on our own, we can't. And we find our answer here at the end of verse 7. The end of verse 7. But, but God is the one you must fear. But God is the one we must fear. So to get out of the cycle of coming here, or of not coming here, and doing things for myself, and finding little to, to none satisfaction, we need to... Do what? We need to fear God. We need to be transformed by Jesus. And when we do this, our motivations will change. Our heart will change. Because when we go to church, it's not about us anymore. Right? When we read God's words, um, we listen and we do. And then when we listen and we do, we're aligning our feet. And we're guarding our hearts in such a way that's giving God glory. So when we fear God, when we love Him, when we're transformed by Jesus, we are guarding our feet. We are pointing them towards Him in such a way that when we come here, we're listening. When we leave, we're doing. And then we're seeing. And then that's increasing our joy and faith. It's, it's almost this, this cycle. So it starts at the end, though. 
It starts with fearing God. You fear Him. You guard your steps. When you come, you listen. You're ready. You leave. You change. But it doesn't start with you. It starts with Him. It starts with Him. But, but if the beginning starts with the end, some of us will ask this question. Well, um, how does this work? Because in order to fear God, you've got to hear about Him. In order to hear about Him, someone's got to say something. So how do you get into this cycle? Right? Because if I can't do it on my own, well, where do we break in? The truth of the matter is that it only breaks in with Jesus. Without Him, you're stuck on the outside and you can never get in. You can never fear God. You can never guard your steps. You can never listen. You can never do without Him. Without Him. Our hearts cannot. Because life under the sun. Because we live in a fallen, broken world. Because where sin reigns, death reigns. And sin is reigning in our hearts. And our hearts won't let us love God. So we're born with a sin nature that says, I want what I want, and, and I can't fear God. I fear myself. I fear myself. This is why Romans 7, 18 through 19, Paul says, For I know that nothing good dwells within me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right. Right? We might come here with this desire. We might come here and say, I want to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Right? So many of us, probably if we're here, we have this desire. I want to do what's right. I want to. I want to fear God. I want to love Christ. I want to do these things. But on our own, we can't. We can't do that. And that is frustrating, is it not? This is extremely frustrating. You ever feel this way? You ever feel frustrated with your, your life when you go home and you say, oh, I wanted to change. I wanted to do something. I wanted to, to respond to the sermon last week. And when I think back, I, I think, wow, I forgot that so quickly. Right? Am I the only one who gets frustrated at myself here? No, this is extremely frustrating. So for the Christian, for the Christian, it's hard. It's hard to leave here and to do what we're told. It's hard. Without Christ, it's impossible. It's impossible. Not only that, but without Christ, everything that Solomon says is true. It is all vanity. You work, you sweat, you die. And not only that, but when you die, you're judged immediately. You're judged immediately. The Bible tells us that God has a record of all of our sin. Right? And the payment for just one of these sins is eternal death. Right? The Bible says the wages of sin is death. So, so we all live for a short little while, then we die, and then immediately we're judged. Immediately we are all judged. And it's time to pay. Right? But God, but I was a good person. Right? I, I volunteered a couple times a year down at the homeless shelter. Um, I even gave a little money here and there to the church. Um, I was just a normal guy. I'm just living my life. I was educated. I helped people. Um, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. And while all of these things might be true, none of them deal with the issue of payment for sin. None of them. None of them deal with this issue. And this is where we stand. We live for a while. Then we die. Then we are judged. And we have nothing but maybe a few good works. Nothing but a few good works. So one day, all of us 
maybe very soon, will be held accountable for the life that we live. So the question is, what are you doing with your life? What are you doing? And what is that day of judgment going to look like? Because the other half of this is a lot better. The other half of, of judgment is a lot better. It looks like this. Jesus came and lived a perfect life. And not only did he live a perfect life, but he died a perfect death. And on that cross, when he died and when he rose, five things happened. Five, a lot more than five things happened, but we're going to look at five things. Expiation, propitiation, reconciliation, substitution, and annihilation. Right? A lot of big words. Our sin and our guilt was removed. Expiation, 1 John 1.19. God's wrath was removed from us. Propitiation. Romans 3.25. We are no longer alienated from God. Reconciliation. Romans 5.10-11. The death that we deserve, the punishment that you and I deserve, Christ took for us. Substitution. 1 Peter 3.18. Christ disarmed the rulers and authorities and he conquered death annihilation colossians 2 13 through 14 so when we die and we all do and like i said none of us think it's coming to us anytime soon but it could be on the drive home today we are going to be faced with that moment that says all right what are you doing with your life what did you do here's all your debt of sin how are you going to pay for it the only thing you can do is say Jesus paid it. Jesus paid it for me. He took my sin. He took away my guilt. He took away my shame. He did it all for me. Because I got nothing. I got nothing but a few pathetic good works. I got nothing. He did it all. He did it all. And from that moment, when you say, Jesus, you've done it for me. You are God's son. You took on my sin. From that moment that you put your faith there and you say, God, thank you for that, God says you're free. That all of that sin is gone. Boom, paid for in full. Paid for in full. We see this in Romans 3, 21 through 24. But now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe. For there is no distinction for all of sin. That's every one of us, you and I. All of us have sinned. We're all sinners. We all are standing there and God's saying, here's what you've done. Here's what you've done against me, an infinitely holy, righteous God. But we are justified by his grace as a gift. That's the gospel. That's the good news is that Jesus was a gift, that it was free for us. This free gift, it, it came at a cost that you and I will not ever be able to understand. But it is free. And all you have to do is say, thank you, Jesus, for that. Thank you. So, so with Christ comes freedom. With Christ comes the ability to fear God and to honor him and to run to him and to cling to him as the giver of Jesus. Right? So that's what we're about here. That's why we come here, because we, we come and we listen, and, and what we hear is, I can't do it, Christ did it, thank you God for sending him for doing it. That is why we're here. So with Christ, we can, we can align our steps. With Christ, we can guard our steps. 
In Christ, we can face our steps towards God even when life is difficult, even in the midst of all this seemingly um, meaninglessness. Right? With Christ, when things are hard, we don't run away from God. We align our steps to Him and we, won't, and we run to Him. That is the good news about Christ. So because of and only because of Christ's offering and sacrifice can we get our minds off of us. So that coming to church no longer is, well, what do I like? Right? Who talked to me? Is, am I entertained? Right? It's, it's not about that anymore. Preaching is about what God has done for me in Christ. It's not, did, did that make me feel good? Right? Singing isn't about, oh, do I like the style? Do I like the song? It's not about that anymore. It's about, am I pleasing to God in my worship? Am I pleasing to Him? That's where fearing the Lord begins. That's where fearing the Lord begins. It begins by an understanding of what Christ did for you. And now all of our worship, all of our church attendance, all of our listening, all turns into doing. And when we do, we receive. And we see the glory of God and we see what he's done for us. And we see that it's, it's all about him. It's not about us. It's not about us. And that becomes the root of our joy and the anchor of our hope. Thank God for Jesus. Because without him, we'd never be able to fear him. We'd never be able to come here and leave and do what we want to do. Even with him, it's hard. But when we don't, when we don't, we can point our feet back to him. And we can say, God, you will sustain me. You will heal me. Because you've already done that all through Christ. All my sins are already paid for. They're already paid for. That is good news. Let's pray. God, we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we thank you that we don't have to come to you with a lot of words. But that when we come to you, we just have to be honest. Lord, you know us. You're our Father. You know what we need before we ask. I pray that you can change our hearts. That our hearts will not be one that says, what's in it for me? But our hearts will be one that says, I'm here to worship you because you've given us Jesus. What good news we have. Lord, I ask that if there's anyone in here who has not seen the joy that comes with knowing Jesus, that they would see that today. That they would put their faith in you, Christ, because you have paid it all. Everything past, everything future. And you've wiped clean our slate. I thank you for that. We love you. We worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.